Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dodds, and I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Sojourn. Uh, today marks, as, uh, as Colleen said, Colleen, uh, today marks the beginning of Holy Week, which is, was, was the last week of, of Jesus' earthly life. And so this week we're going to be looking at the book of Mark, one of four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And today, this particular Sunday, often called Palm Sunday, uh, commemorates his triumphal entry into this capital city of Jerusalem. So we begin appropriately in Mark 11 as Jesus enters the city. So Passover was one of the great pilgrimage festivals in the capital city of Jerusalem. The city at this time would have been teeming with people. Uh, Normally, population in Jerusalem was about 40,000. During this week, it would swell to over 250,000. So it was exciting, it was busy, it was crowded. And because of that, Roman anxiety would have been higher during this week. Um, They would have been extra watchful and controlling of this massive influx of Israelites uh, during a heightened season of celebration. But Roman occupation was already brutal. It was already oppressive. Jews were subject to overtaxation, to frequent imprisonment. The land that they were living in, in which was given to them by God, was actually owned by the Romans, and they, they were the ones that were making all of the decisions. The Jews didn't have a Bill of Rights. They didn't have a constitution. They didn't have a government to aid them or help them. All their hope was riding on the promise that God made to David, that a righteous king would come and set up an everlasting kingdom for them, a grand kingdom and a glorious rule that would never end. But at this point in Jewish history, those promises appear unfulfilled. And so, what sort of deliverance were they looking for? What images or stories were coming to their minds concerning this promised Davidic king? Perhaps they were thinking of a former king, maybe like Jehu, who was a former king of Israel. We meet Jehu for the first time in 2 Kings, that's a part of the Old Testament that comes before, it's part of the Bible that comes before Christ. But Jehu was anointed as the king of northern Israel by the prophet Elisha. He was the captain of the Israelite army, and he was a hyper-violent ethnic cleanser who had a great zeal for the Lord. But after his anointing from Elisha, the people come out to greet him, and they throw their garments down underneath his feet as he sets out to enact God's vengeance against this oppressive king, Ahab. So he climbs up onto his war horse. He brings his band along with him, and he enters the city of Jezreel without any resistance, and he just butchers his enemies into submission. I mean, it's a complete slaughter. It's a photograph of, like, the Battle of Thermopylae. There is no mercy, no quarter Jehu is merciless. And anyone disloyal to God, disloyal to him, disloyal to his people is brought under the sword. And Jehu relishes this vengeance. Now for a first century Jew who was eager to see the coming promised king, who was eager and ready for the end of Roman rule, this story would have been ringing in their ears. It would have been, it would have been music to their ears. The week of Passover would have been the perfect time for another Jehu 
a violent avenger would show up with no mercy for the Romans. But then here comes Jesus entering Jerusalem. And so let's pick up in verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So the people see their king. And they cry out, save us completely, fully. You promised king. Now the Greek word here for colt is polos. Is best translated, most closely translated as baby horse or little donkey. So it's cute. Right? But in the East, the donkey is held in really high esteem. It's valued as a beast of burden. It's a symbol of peace. Kings often rode on donkeys during peacetime. And I'm sure we agree, even with this little snapshot, it's not much of a presidential motorcade. It's almost silly. Jesus doesn't have a war horse. He doesn't have a band of fellow assassins. He doesn't have an army. He is not at all like Jehu. This is a man of such poverty that he didn't even have a donkey of his own. He had to borrow a donkey. And yet what Jesus is doing is getting all of these people, the ones who were going before him and the ones who were coming behind him, he's getting us as well to see the juxtapositioning of things that do not belong together. This messianic, promised, deliverer, king comes into his capital city on a donkey. Jesus is showing us that in himself, in himself, majesty and meekness intersect. That power and weakness conjoin. Jesus is the lion but he's also a lamb. He's the king, but he's a servant. He's infinitely high and yet infinitely accessible and approachable. He's a rock, but he's a pearl. He's a fragile flower, but a mighty tree of life. And Jehu, the king, enters the city on a large horse, bloodthirsty, merciless, bringing death and violence. And Jesus enters the city on a donkey. But there's no slaughter. There's no trampling. There's no violence against the people. Why? Why not? The Jews would have known this, that he was fulfilling, he was fulfilling the prophet prophecy in Zechariah that said that the messianic king would come humbly on a donkey bringing righteousness and salvation not death and bloodthirst Jesus is the anti-Jehu he's the king that no one expects and in his arrival he's bringing peace to the house of God but he knows that in order to bring that peace it's going to mean his own death so let's keep reading And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And to verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, so this is his second visit to the temple in as many days. 
And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when that evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus enters the city, his capital city, and he heads toward the temple. His eye and his mind are set on the temple. So what was the temple? Temple was the place on earth where God's presence dwelt. And there was this structure in the very middle of the temple called the Holy of Holies, where the very presence and glory of God existed, but no one could enter and live. How did, how did we get here? We have to go back to the very beginning in Genesis, the first book of the Bible where it all began. Adam and Eve are created by God in this perfect garden, this garden that was the original temple, the original sanctuary where God's presence dwelt in full. But in this case, in Genesis, it dwelt with Adam and Eve as human beings, and there was harmony and peace and shalom. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed, when they rebelled against God and sinned, they became impure, and therefore they could no longer be in the presence of God, this holy, glorified presence. So they're cast out of the garden, and they're cast out of the presence of God. Now Genesis 3 paints this very interesting picture that as Adam and Eve are walking out of the garden and the doors close, that a flaming sword guards the door and that it moves about back and forth, facing every direction, guarding the way back into God's presence. So how do we get back into God's presence? The temple was God's redemption plan. The temple was another garden. But this time, this time in Jerusalem, God had to provide a way to atone for that sin. So every time a Jew came to God to atone for his or her sin, to get into the Holy of Holies, to get into the presence of God, they would have to transfer their sin to an animal. And that animal was put under a sword. That animal was killed. It was sacrificed. Why? to give access to the presence of God, to address that flaming sword. It was the only way anyone could have access to the presence of God again. So in here, in Mark 11, Jesus enters the temple as the king of Israel and as the high priest of Israel. And he finds God's garden, the sanctuary, overgrown with weeds. The nations are unable to enter the presence of God because their way back was being obstructed. How? By the money changers. See, when Jesus walked into the court of the Gentiles, that Gentiles were anyone that was not Jewish. So it's also, also the same word for the nations. Like this is, this is anyone who isn't Jewish. But the temple had been constructed where it gave a place for those Gentiles, those non-Jews, to come. Can, uh, can we take a look at that 
at the, at the temple. So this is what the temple looked like. This is what Herod's temple looked like. Now see, on the outside, that biggest division, the Holy of Holies, is that sort of larger structure in the back. But this is where the Gentiles would come to worship God, to commune with God, to enter the presence of God. When Jesus walked into this court, he would have seen on Passover, because of that increased, increased attendance and, and population, he would have seen thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people buying and selling animals. Just to give you an idea of how, probably how many people were in this division and area, a census was taken during one week of Passover, 255,000 lambs bought and sold. 37,000 lambs bought and sold per day during a week. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of tables. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of animals. It's a lot of noise. How do I commune with God when I have no space, when I, when I have to be swindled and corrupted by these money changers? The buying and selling of animals had become a racket for the Jews. So all the pilgrims who had come to worship were being cheated by the money changers and it was keeping them from communing with God. God's purpose for setting the temple in the city was to create an emblem of universalism. Come one and all. Come the nations. Come everyone. Come into the presence of God. Come commune with the one who has made you. But the very place where the nations could come to meet with God had been turned into a place of corruption. See, God is not against capitalism, trade, or money. He is opposed to people being barred from his presence. The Jews thought that their Jehu king would come to the temple to advocate for the Jews and to cleanse the temple of Gentile presence and defilement, but ironically, King Jesus comes to advocate for those Gentiles and to cleanse the temple from Jewish defilement. Now you're keeping the people from me. This will not stand. He brings peace into God's house by purifying the temple and driving out the corruption and enacting ethnic transnational reconciliation, providing Gentiles with access to God. However, while the animal sacrifices did give access to God, it was, only a temporary, it was only a temporary solution. It was a symbol, but it, was, it didn't fix everything. The question still remained, how do we get back into God's presence permanently? How do we deal with that flaming sword? And we'll get to that in a minute, but let's look at Jesus and the fig tree first. On the following day, this is verse 12, excuse me. On the following day, when they came from Bethany... He, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 20, They passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The order of Jesus' visitations here in these verses is important because he's going back and forth 
between the temple and the tree. And I think that he's, he's definitely trying to show us there's a relationship here between the temple and the tree. This portion with the fig tree looks a little strange for Jesus. He's hungry. He goes to the tree. It isn't time for figs. And there's this sort of like, if we read it incorrectly, it can kind of sound like Jesus is going like, well, you don't have any fruit, so you're going to go down and I'm going to burn you. Like it may sound a little childish. Like it may sound a little childish. But he's, he condemns the tree, but he's mad. Why is he mad? See, there, were, there were two kinds of fruit that the fig trees could bear. When, when leaves would come in for a fig tree, there were these smaller buds of early fruit that were really, really sweet, but they're really, really small. You couldn't see them unless you were like close to the tree. But they were a delicacy. People could pick them off and eat them. But if you saw a fig tree with leaves and no fruit at all, no small buds and no fruit, you knew that it wasn't healthy. Jesus is looking at, his, at a diseased tree. Even if it looked good on the outside with those leaves, it could look good from a distance, but it's still dying on the inside. Jesus is not necessarily dealing with the tree. It's almost like it's a parable. He's dealing with the fruitless temple and fruitless Israel who have been barring the nations from his presence. So the tree was an emblem for both the temple and the people. The good temple was fruitless. God's people were fruitless, but Jesus had come to cleanse both of them, to resurrect both of them, to make them new. How? By going underneath the sword himself. The prophet Isaiah said it this way in chapter 58. By oppression... And judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Revelation 5 recounts the disciple John seeing the throne of God, and that on that throne there was a lamb standing on it as if it had been slain. When Jesus went to the cross, it mirrored Jehu getting on his war horse. Jesus climbed onto that cross. And do you, know, do you know what he did when he climbed on that cross? He was slaughtered. He was trampled. He was cursed. He withered. He took the impurity and the violence of the temple and the people and he put it on himself. Why? to deal with that flaming sword once and for all so that every nation and every person could have access permanently to the presence of God again. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says this, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fullness of God was actually living in Jesus. Jesus is the temple. He is the garden. He's the fruitful fig tree. He's the faithful Israel. 
But on the cross, he was emptied of all of that, and he was torn in two. And Mark 15 says that at that moment, simultaneously, as Jesus was torn in two, the veil in the temple that separated man from God was torn from top to bottom. Jesus brought peace and purity through the presence of God to the nations so that they might be fruitful. It's the greatest kingly triumph, the death of division in the death of Christ. So through Jesus' death and resurrection, this withered, fruitless temple and people is reborn as the church, the church temple where God's presence dwells always. And one day, according to the prophet Habakkuk, the earth will be covered by the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The temple is no longer going to be in one location. It's going to be everywhere. And this is what it's going to look like. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 gives us a picture. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Have you all heard the new Andrew Peterson song? Is he worthy? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who brings peace into the city. He is the high priest that purifies the temple. He is the great gardener who makes the temple and his people fruitful. And now, since the presence of God is among us through Christ and by his Spirit, we can become a people of peace and purity who welcome the nations into his presence. As Christians, all of us now, all of us in Christ, we are now priests in the church temple. We are kings and queens in the city. We are gardeners in the garden, offering our bodies and lives as living sacrifices, not so that we would be forgiven, but so that others would experience the forgiveness and presence of God. So what would that look like for us as a church to be everything the temple is supposed to be? This is hardly an exhaustive list, but maybe it could look like this. It can look like this. It means that within our parishes and with one another as a church, we fight individually and corporately to put to death the sins that remain in us through confession and repentance. That's how we fight for purity. We can open ourselves up to one another's rebuke, correction, and admonishment. We're fighting for purity. We can be sensitive and aware of our character flaws and sin and how that might obstruct people's way back to God. 
and we can fight for peace and welcoming. We can strive for harmony and unity within our parishes, being quick to listen, quick to forgive and confess and repent, and to believe Jesus and need his grace. We can fight for peace. We will reject violence when we see impurity in God's house and in his people. We don't have to respond like Jehu, trampling, destroying, and beating one another up. We lay down our lives for each other's flourishing because he laid his life down for our flourishing. It means that we can work with Houston Welcomes Refugees, welcoming them into our lives and into this church, into the presence of God. In our homes, in our workplace, in our parishes, and in this gathering, we can welcome one and all into the presence of God. We will not bar anyone from repentance, reconciliation, or restoration in Christ. No one will be barred from that in this church. And when it comes to ethnic reconciliation, we can lead the way. Now, speaking as a white evangelical male, I think that we can strive to be less offended. I'm including myself in that. We have our identity so rooted in Christ that whatever social or cultural hashtag is out there, we can search for truth amidst the accusations without rejecting them wholesale. We have a place to put both the trespass against us and the guilt and shame of our trespass. We have a place to go. It's the cross. It's Christ himself. May God make us more into a people of peace, a people of purity, and a people that is glad to welcome the nations into the presence of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we have an advocate in Christ. Jesus, thank you for fighting for the nations, for advocating for the nations. And Father, we ask that you would make us by your spirit a place of peace, that we would be people of peace. Because you've made peace by the blood of your cross. Father, we pray that you'd make make us a people of purity, people who strive to flee from sin, to kill sin, and to believe you, to need your grace, to believe your grace, to experience your grace, and to know that you have purified us in your own death and resurrection. And we also know that you will bear fruit in our lives. Help us to abide in you, Jesus. Produce fruit of self-control, of peace and love and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness. 
And may that be a welcome to the nations. No, come. Come and hear about him. Come and know him. Come and experience him. Come and commune with him. Father, don't don't let our greed of community keep our door closed to the nations. May we be a church that welcomes all to come and hear who you are, to come and see who you are, to come and know who you are. And Father, we need all of your help, all of your strength, all of your patience, all of your grace to do this. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.